what was your this or that moment? Like, it's either I continue alcohol in this or I stop right now so I can have that. Yeah. My boss at the startup that I was working at was having some people over for dinner at his apartment. And so I went and there was wine and I told myself I was only going to have a couple of glasses and we finished dinner and then someone brought out a bottle of whiskey and I told myself I would only have one. And I remember there was a point in the night I looked in the mirror and I was like, this is the point where you should go home. Like you're done. And then there was another voice that was like a little bit louder. That was also my voice that was like, no, you should stay. Like you can show your boss how fun you are, you know? And I'm had some feelings for him that were a little bit romantic. And, um, that was like one of my last memories from that night. And I woke up the next morning next to his best friend. Lovers and friends. I'ma take you on a trip, baby. I don't pretend. I say, lovers and friends. Uh, I'ma hold you down, down to the end. I say, welcome to Lovers and Friends, a podcast about intimacy. The purpose of this podcast is to spark hard to have conversations in your romantic, and sexual life that lead to powerful shifts. And I genuinely believe that this episode delivers on that premise because we're talking about some powerful shit, alcohol. And if you don't consider liquor powerful, then I think you got a lot to learn today. Side note, I just wanna put this disclaimer out there, okay? I don't know a damn thing about alcohol. I don't drink, I don't make drinks. And as a result, I'm not entirely sure if liquor is another word for alcohol or like a specific brand that we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Like is booze, drank, scissor, grandpa's old cough medicine, sauce. Like are all those things saying the same thing or are they describing different sub things of alcohol? Like I said, much to learn. As I was saying, alcohol is powerful. And as a result, it's also very popularly paired with sex. Something that I, as well as it turns out the vast majority of us tend to know a little something about. So the most sex I've ever had before in my life was in the first year that I lived with Jared. But the most sexual partners that I ever racked up in a short amount of time occurred in my late teens. A time where if I was going to school and I had a fear or discomfort about the day ahead, I would drink beforehand. I just never wanted to feel that dead again. So I stopped drinking altogether. This is not something that I share with pride, but again, it's just a detail of how I think my personal best life is lived and is possible. And admittedly, this is not a detail that has flowed with many of my romantic partnerships. My ex, for example, really did not like the fact that I didn't drink and it was an ongoing issue in our relationship. And even in my marriage, when I asked Jared for fun, hypothetically, what does your next wife do that I currently don't? He said, have a glass of wine every once in a while. Here are some stats from a study by Catherine Lakeland of FemFresh. Three quarters of women claim they felt more comfortable and able to let their hair down and go wild after a few drinks. 48% said they preferred sex while under the influence. Four out of 10 have always been a bit tipsy when they slept with a partner for the first time. The study also found that 75% of women said they'd like to drink before getting into bed with their husband or with their long-term boyfriend. And many of you shared similar sentiments with me. I think for most people, alcohol in combination with sex tends to be the thing that opens the door to kind of playing down some uh, insecurities, uh, anything that's kind of holding you back. So I think in that sense, it's definitely been able to make the experience better. Alcohol has improved my sex life um, because it's helped me shed my inhibitions and learn more about what I really want and enjoy in the bedroom and kind of let loose to understand what that feels like. I like to drink before sex really because it frees my mind and body from thinking too much and allows me to feel comfortable doing and saying things I probably wouldn't do while sober. Also, I last longer too, so that's a plus. For me, I like drinking before sex because I notice whenever I do get a little tipsy, I'm a really happy drunk. It can turn a really dry, boring party into one of the funnest times that I could have in the night. Uh, And it does the same thing for sex, you know? I just notice that I'm having a lot more fun while I'm having sex when I'm a little tipsy. 
10 points for sexual expression and another 10 for sexual exploration. Alcohol also has a warming and relaxing effect. That's sensual, right? People, specifically biosex females, can feel more turned on after drinking alcohol. The increase in testosterone and estradiol in their bodies raises libido, even though physiologically their body is less receptive to sex. That last voice that you heard is taken from a clip from Dr. Lindsay Doe's video on alcohol and sex, which I'm gonna share more of that video because she next goes on to outline the cons, which of course we have to talk about too. And while we're not gonna focus on assault in this episode, I do have to mention that alcohol is known as the number one date rape drug. And even in consensual encounters, it is not always, or in some cases often, a positive pairing for many people. Me and drinking, 10 out of 10, have a great time. I'm a great drunk. But me drinking and then having sex, 0 out of 10. One, because alcohol dries me out, so definitely not getting wet down there. More importantly, I have the attention span of a one-year-old. I just will be into it for a minute and then I'm like, okay, bye. It really clouds my judgment and all of a sudden someone that I wasn't feeling that much is really attracted to me. <laughs> but I think that when you actually get to the sex, your vagina is way less sensitive and usually the guy is less sensitive too and it can just be awkward and not the best. I've had some experiences where we're both drinking, we start having sex and not so much um, anything like bad that happens, but drinking dries you out. Both of our mouths get really dry. We like, everything's a bit sloppier and uh, it's not as sexy as it sounds. Alcohol is a depressant, meaning it reduces the amount and quality of messages in the central nervous system. Essentially, the more alcohol, the slower the body functions. That's pulse, breathing, blood pressure, concentration, speech, sensation, and coordination. Almost all of what sex is, minus 10 points each. Maybe you've heard of whiskey dick or brewer's droop. Alcohol dilates blood vessels so that blood flows in and out rather than building up to create an erection. So alcohol makes it difficult to get an erection. If you can, then it may be difficult to orgasm because messages from the genitals to the brain to the genitals are sent inefficiently. It's all slower. Harder to get up, harder to get off, minus 20. Then there's dehydration, contributing to dry mucous membranes, namely the vagina and the anus. Alcohol plus sex can also mean injury tearing abrasions, bruises, and bites because again, the messages aren't getting around well. The body isn't realizing as quickly, if at all, that there's damage being done. I just want to reiterate that the goal of this episode is not to make you feel some kind of way about your current choices in the matter, but to question and clarify them. And to help you do that, mental health counselor Erica Lubedkin joins us towards the end of this episode. But what happens when you drink in such excess amounts is you're introducing intense levels of a depressant into your body and as a way for your body to remain in homeostasis it actually creates more cortisol which is a stress hormone and then the next morning you wake up and you have a hangover you're hungover the alcohol is leaving your system but you're left with this excess unnatural amount of cortisol that your body created but before we go all the way there, first up, I want you to hear from the personal experiences of Sarah Levy, the author of Drinking Games, the book named as most anticipated by Good Morning America, New York Post, Pure Wow, BuzzFeed, Los Angeles Time, Book Riot, and Apple Books. Go, Sarah. All right. I was going to start this with a series of questions about your book. Yeah. And then I was like, I actually want one particular part of your book that I want to talk about, so I'm going to read it. And then I was like, why don't you have the author read it? Yes. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, I love it. A reading from the author. <laughs> Dramatic reading. I drank because it turned me into the kind of girl guys wanted. This isn't a theory plucked out of my imagination. It was a method I tested carefully over the years with the precision of a scientist removing variables like feelings and keeping control groups like myself. When I was sober, I flirted awkwardly, my limbs weighing me down. I was painfully aware of my skin, my hips, my boring everything. But with alcohol, I flitted gracefully from one topic to the next. I was a skilled conversationalist, confidently launching into conversational Italian. I didn't know I remembered. I became a charming version of myself, funnier, thinner, sugary sweet. And men responded. They flirted back, bought me drinks, took me home. I wanted the perfect love story with the perfect guy, and I needed alcohol to get it. 
I was drunk the night of my first kiss in high school and again when I had sex for the first time in college. It was a magic elixir that brought me closer to the opposite sex. As I became well-versed in hookup culture, I came to regard alcohol as a kind of truth serum that revealed our real selves. I loved spending nights lying awake with boys I had just met, spilling the secrets we normally guarded fiercely, knowing all would be erased when the sun came up. There was a silent agreement. We could be vulnerable with each other under the influence, just as long as we both pretended not to remember the next day. At 25, I woke up in bed next to a friend of a friend. It was my first real one-night stand, and I laughed off the blurry details of the night before. We had both been sloppy. But over time, the same scene became less cute. At 27, I woke up next to a stranger. As my hangover wedged its way into my throat, panic came over me. We were naked, but I couldn't remember what had happened the night before. There were bits and pieces of memories. The bar we met at, our fourth round of drinks, kissing in a taxi. When he rolled over and I got a good look at his face, I almost started crying. I didn't even like him. Still, I was in love with the idea of love and liquor. I didn't want to be the girl slurring over her wine, but I also didn't know how I would ever fall in love without it. Alcohol, according to my research, was the key to unlocking intimacy. All around me, friends were falling in love with men they met over drinks. But as my blackouts and hangovers became worse, it became clear that cocktails weren't bringing me any closer to love. They were holding me back. I am so proud to share that this episode, as well as upcoming episodes, are sponsored by BetterHelp. If things are coming up in this episode for you or in life overall right now, why not talk with a licensed therapist or counselor who can help you get through your feelings? Working with a therapist gives you the right tools to help you navigate through emotions, and it can also motivate you to become the best version of yourself. If you have never tried therapy before, it might be because you think it is too inaccessible to find the right fit or, let's be honest, too expensive. And if so, I am thrilled to encourage you to try BetterHelp. As your first step, head over to betterhelp.com lovers, fill out a brief questionnaire to get you matched with a licensed therapist. And here is a fun fact. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge through BetterHelp. And speaking of charge, BetterHelp is more affordable than most office-based therapy options. Plus, they offer financial aid. Plus, plus, here's where the code comes in. Visit betterhelp.com lovers to get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp. That is betterhelp.com slash lovers for 10% off your first month. Take care. So what drove you into drinking to get drunk? Like what was the catalyst? Yeah. So this was junior year. I was about to take my SATs. And I remember like I was having a really hard time with the practice tests. Like I wasn't scoring as high as I wanted to. And it felt like my world was going to end if I didn't get a certain score so that I could like get on to the next stage of where my life was supposed to go. And so that first party that I went to was with the intention to get drunk was because I was in that mindset of like, I'm not good enough. I'm messing everything up. I'm, this is going to affect the rest of my life. Like really all or nothing thinking. When I walked in the door, this guy that I had really liked, you know, I had a crush on him was there and said some things that like kind of hurt my feelings. And I remember that moment really well of like, being what did like, he, say? he was like, Oh, like Levy, I haven't seen you around in a while. Like it was just my birthday. Like what, like what about a blow job? Like, like something like that. And that was like not the nature of our relationship, you know? And it was in front of people. Like it was in front of my friends, his friends. And I was so embarrassed. I thought that he liked me. Like I thought that he was my friend and there was a handle of vodka on the counter and I just took the bottle and there was a solo cup and I didn't know anything about like shots or measuring out your, your drinks. And so I just filled the whole cup like water and I drank the whole thing. And then what happened the rest of the night? Cause you, you know, as you described when the eggs are just there, it was like, I became a, I want to say better version, but a perceived better version of myself. Did you have that experience and fall in love with that? Did you have very sick and say never again? What happened that first night? So that night I got very sick. I was not a better version of myself. I blacked out, which I ended up doing almost every time I drank for the next like 10 plus years. The next time though, it was, it felt like magic. Like it was just a different, I had a different mindset going into the night and 
I felt like I was getting attention from guys and feeling really, like I say in the book, just sparkly, just a better version of myself. And I remember like when I stopped drinking, I heard people say that, you know, their relationship with alcohol started out as magic and then it became medicine. And it was always like going back and forth between the two for me. Like some nights it was medicinal where it was like, I don't want to feel this way. So I want to alter my state of mind. But then there were other nights where it was like, I just want to get outside of myself and feel good, you know, just feel a little bit better. And there were, you know, the next few times that I drank after that first time, I felt really good about myself. Like I was making people laugh and I felt like guys were paying attention to me. Everything I think I had ever wanted, I felt like I was getting when I drank. Was it that, like I have a friend of mine um, who said, when I'm sober, I'm not a good dancer. But when I'm drunk, I'm an amazing dancer. I'm mm -hmm. like, no, you're always a bad dancer. It's mm -hmm. just that when you're drunk, you don't realize or have that self-consciousness filter. So yeah. looking back on it as somebody who's been sober now for five years, um, do you think that you were a different version of yourself or you were just the same, but maybe the sensibilities that you would have had to just, you know, with, to keep certain parts of yourself withdrawn, you would just give freely? I think I was always the same. I think I just was more like less inhibited, you know, like I was just more the the self that maybe was always there, but I didn't really access because I was scared of what people would think. So I would just like make jokes or I was more forward, you know, especially with with men. I think I would make the first move or I would approach a guy. And I think in my sober life, I was more reserved and that wasn't necessarily the case. But I write in the book that like I could speak conversational Italian with men like I don't speak Italian like I don't know what I was saying so I definitely think there were probably instances where if I played them back like it actually wasn't that that charming or cute like <laughs> right like I just felt like oh magically now I'm this amazing version of myself and I also think that over time it started to change like my drinking progressed where maybe when I was like 20 and having four or five vodka sodas like I was giggling and people thought it was funny and I was attracting attention. But as I got older and I was drinking more and more, it was an illusion. And it was a lie that I was telling myself that drinking made me a better dancer or made me more fun. Like at a certain point, I think I was just the drunkest person in the room and for better or for worse, like people pay attention to you when you're in that state. And I was telling myself a story about what it looked like that I don't think was accurate. You said that you studied with the precision of a scientist, you know, the difference between mm. the attention you got when you were sober versus the attention you got when you were drunk. Can you give me an apples to oranges story of each? Yeah. So I remember, you know, I had a friend in college and in when we moved to New York after school and she was just beautiful. She was like all eyes on her when you walked into a room. And when I was sober, I remember just feeling like I'm her like plain friend. I'm her sidekick. Like no one pays attention to me. I don't have anything interesting to say. The most interesting thing about me is that I'm friends with her and that I'm next to her. When we would go out together and I would be also drinking, I felt like guys were paying attention to me too. I felt like I su suddenly had something to say. I had value to add to the conversation. It was that dichotomy of the way I feel invisible when I'm next to other people and the way that I feel about myself when I'm sober versus the attention that I feel like I'm getting when I'm drunk and when I'm telling a guy, oh yeah, let's go get another drink. And suddenly they're paying more attention to me. Your first kiss was with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Can you share that story? And when you think back on it, was it a positive or negative experience? My first kiss was with that guy that I saw at that party that who said that made that comment to me. And um, that night or a different night, a different night. So basically what happened was we were hanging out. I didn't think that we were going to drink. I didn't know that was going to happen. And he was like, I have some like warm gin in this like Poland spring water bottle that I got from my parents like liquor cabinet. Um, like, should we drink some? And like when you're young, that's like someone offering you like the highest, like <laughs> like the most amazing wine at a restaurant or whatever. I was like, oh my God, I would love to, right? Like, thank you. Um, and so we had a few sips. Like it wasn't at all the to the extent of like, I want to get drunk and I want to, you know, have a crazy night the way that like my future nights were. And um, I just got like a little bit buzzed, but I was with him and he was like so affectionate and just like his whole body language, everything about it changed. And I just had really liked him and he wasn't really reciprocating. But on that night when we were both 
tipsy, like he kissed me. And it was, you know, like such a positive, sweet experience. It was like exactly what you would want your first kiss to be like in a movie, except that we were both drinking. And that like a couple of days later, I remember him being like, I don't even really remember what happened. Like, I just get really affectionate when I'm drunk. Like, I don't know what happened. And so it was that immediately that like, oh, I, I guess like I must have just totally read the situation wrong. But I didn't like I remembered it, you know. And um, most of my interactions with men while, you know, over my drinking career were somewhat under the influence, whether or not I was wasted, like if I was going on a date or, you know, with boyfriends and stuff, like we were usually drinking or doing something, you know. And um, so it became a big part of how I felt comfortable with men and how I felt comfortable in my sexuality and how I felt comfortable like being intimate was with something in my system. It was always about like the validation of the night ends successfully if someone wants to go home with me. I've never had drunk sex before. Mm. What is it like? I, I would think of it like a waltz kind of. Like I knew that like you're making out with someone and then at a certain point like the clothes are coming off and it was all like the edges were blurred, you know, but it was just this dance that like we were both doing sort of unspoken. Um, I had so much noise around my body. I had, had an eating disorder. Like I felt very disconnected from myself in a lot of ways. And so having someone basically tell me that I was attractive enough and wanted to sleep with me, like that was the win for me. It wasn't actually about the sex itself. And, and, you know, in, in there I had boyfriends and like sex with them w would be different because we were in an actual relationship. But like the by and large drunken sex that I was having was very transactional, I think. Was I it orgasmless? Yes. Yeah, I was definitely never orgasming from drunken sex. Period. And it wasn't even a thought. Like I didn't even think to ask or I never I would I never had the confidence to say like okay well you're finished now what about me because what I had gotten from it it was like the the act of a guy saying let's go home together and being in that taxi or getting to back to their apartment was the orgasm that was the high that was what I wanted was someone is telling me that I am good enough and the rest really didn't matter does that still, because I don't want to discount, you know, good sex is a, de a definition that everyone gets to define. Mm -hmm. So if you, in theory, were getting an orgasm from mm -hmm. the validation, did that mean that it was good sex? I would leave some interactions or I had some like hookup buddies, right? Like guys that I was consistently sleeping with when I was still drinking and I felt like it was good sex at the time. I would definitely have described it that way, even though I wasn't orgasming. I was feeling like very satisfied from the interactions because I was like, he's hot and it's fun, right? Like the act of sex itself still felt fun. Then I got sober and it's night and day, right? Like the sober sex that I started to have, which was awkward and scary for me because I'd never been that present with, a, with another partner before and during sex before. But so I realized it, it wasn't as good as I thought it was. But at the time, I I, th I thought it was. Yeah, at the time I was thinking I'm living in New York and I'm going out and I'm dating these attractive men and we're sleeping together and they want to see me again and I'm having good sex, even though it's not about my pleasure, even though I'm not leaving the interaction being like satisfied in the way that I am now. Because in thinking about your story of your first kiss, I have this anecdote where I say good sex lasts for three weeks mm -hmm. because I probably use sex in the same way you use alcohol, and which is why I got into work that I do. But I had to stop qualifying good sex as it felt good in the moment to it felt good for a month. Mm -hmm. Like the next morning, I didn't wake up crying. And a week later, when I called the person, they actually picked up. Or three weeks later, when we didn't talk anymore, I would look back and say I was still do because it was a great experience. So I had to like extend the time that mm -hmm. made it good because yes, is it fun to make out with somebody and once you're making out and you start getting hot and heavy, it's more awkward to stop than it is just to let it happen. 
Um, but when I stop looking at it, like I'm trying to save the moment to, I'm trying to create a healthy life or a long-term life. That's when my behavior switched. Mm -hmm. So when you think back to that kiss experience where it was great in the moment, but then a week later it was deeply confusing and a little hurtful. Mm -hmm. Is it good or bad? I don't think it's bad. I think that it wasn't real in the same way that I thought it was. And I think that that's what I really, when I like zoomed out and looked at the collective of all the experiences and how I would feel a week after drinking, two weeks after drinking, a month later, how I was feeling about my goals that I was not accomplishing, the person that I was becoming, the way that I was making myself promises and then not keeping them. Like when I looked at all of that, I was just tired of it. Like I was tired of the same cycle of waking up every single Friday or Saturday morning and being like, who did I text? What did I say? Did I really mean that? Like, who's going to be mad at me? Who am I waking up next to? Did I want to be in the situation? And having to kind of like tell myself stories and make up excuses for why I was in that situation. How does drunken sex end? The guy just like finishes and you're done and then you pass out. So you sleep in the same bed usually? Yeah, usually. And then what like happens the next day? It's the weirdest thing because it's like there was this spell between you where you were intimate and knew each other, but you were both drunk. Maybe he got you water like before you went to sleep or whatever. And then you wake up and it's like the spell is broken and your your head hurts and like the light's really bright and you kind of roll over and you're like, where am I? Oh, right. I'm in this person's apartment or he's in my bed. And then you kind of have this naked stranger next to you. And it's sort of like, for me, it was always like rewinding in a movie and like going back to the part where we met, but we were naked next to each other and we had had sex. And I was like, I don't even really remember. Like, where are you from? Who are you? Um, it, it's very weird. Is it like, let's try to re-get to know each other now under these new conditions or let's try to get away from each other as fast as possible because the spell is broken? It was usually the latter. It was usually, okay, I got to go. This was fun. Maybe I'll get your number. Um, but I can count on one hand the times where it was like, let's get coffee or let's go to breakfast. Like that very rarely happened. I think because we would probably both be waking up feeling like physically unwell, right? Like we would be hungover. I was often like very nauseous. I threw up most times after I drank, which is like the least sexy thing, I think. So I was often like, how can I get out of here as quickly as possible? Um, and I think also it's just like the not knowing, the not remembering, like, what did I disclose to this person the night before? And I, and again, this is just my experience as a blackout drinker. I'm sure that some people have drunken sex where they weren't in a blackout and maybe they didn't like overshare. But for me, it would always be like, what did I say last night? Like, did I tell him about my deepest, darkest insecurity? And sometimes it was like a shame hangover being like, I can't believe I said that. And I don't, I don't want to continue knowing this person because I'm so embarrassed by what I openly told him last night. Um, we didn't know we weren't, we had just met often the night before. Maybe we had gone on a couple of dates. Um, there wasn't that build of like, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I'm really excited to do this again. That's interesting. Cause I of course know friends to this day who still wouldn't have sex without being drunk or without drinking. Mm -hmm. And that actually is a thing. It was in my last relationship for sure. It was a problem that I did not drink. Mm. And it almost was like a lecture point of you're not as good of a lover as you could be. I think that sometimes too, when one person is drinking and one person isn't, the person who is drinking carries like a guilt or mm. an awkwardness because it's like, Again, you, that analogy of like, I'm operating under the guise of nothing that we are doing counts, but you're keeping score because you're sober. Mm -hmm. So it became like a thing of like, in my mind, I'm like, drunk sex must be amazing because mm -hmm. people who do it are so convinced that this is the only way to do it. And I think drunk sex with a partner that you're maybe like dating consistently or you're in a relationship with, that could be different. I really never had that experience because I would drink in extremes. So I have never really had the 
experience of like, we're both perfectly buzzed and we have like wild sex because we're both like, it's so enhanced because we're both like at the perfect amount of drunk. I was often picking partners and picking men who drank like I did. Um, and so my experience is really like one of a blackout kind of like party culture in your twenties in a big city. I think that there are a lot of people who continue to drink and date and have sex while they're drinking. And it's definitely not, I'm sure it's not the experience that I had for me, my drinking completely cut me off from being in touch with my body or my brain. So it's very hard to, I think like be a good lover or enjoy sex when you're in that state. And what's ironic in like talking about this and thinking back to all of those drunken sexual encounters is like, I thought that was, I thought it was great. Like I thought that it was, I thought I was on the road to finding a partner that way. Like I, I, I really did. Um, and now looking back, I think I was just completely in my own world. And so being sober kind of like brought me back down to earth and helped me to really pay attention to like what I wanted, what felt good, what I wanted in a partner, things that I think I've been too afraid to really like be honest with myself about or really like ask myself those questions. Now, the story of waking up beside someone that you weren't attracted to, mm -hmm. that you had shared your body with is obviously a low point. But was there a high point experience that you were chasing by continuing to use alcohol as a method of foreplay? Yeah, I mean, I think like the relationships that I had been in that, you know, lasted for months, years, they all started with drinking as well. And there were moments in my drinking career where I felt like, you know, like I've arrived, like I would feel really like my best self when I was drinking. And um, I remember going on dates with men that I ended up like having relationships with and we both drank on on those dates and had like a fun time. And so I think I was always trying to go back and try to find that again. And what I've learned about alcohol and the way that it impacts different people in different ways is that it's very, it's progressive. And so it's very hard to go back to the way that alcohol affected your, your body once you've like passed a certain threshold. I couldn't get back to that level of ease that I felt with alcohol that I had had when I was first drinking. Why? I think that it's honestly like, something to do with like my genetics. And I think that the way that like I process alcohol, I am allergic to it. And I think it, it got worse and worse for me over time. Um, and it just got to a point, like I feel like it could have continued to get worse if I had kept drinking through my thirties and forties, but it got to a point in my twenties where I was just like, I, I am trying everything I can to control this and something in my brain I can't control it when I start to drink. And as I got older, when I would start to drink, it was nearly impossible for me to like follow the rules that I had set for myself going into the night. Is that because it had become an addiction? I think so. Yeah, I think that my brain and my body had just become so accustomed to drinking a certain way and to requiring a certain amount of drinks to like reach my base that it became much harder for me to to moderate or to control it on my own. And like I said, you know, I, I it, it wasn't something that I was doing on my own. It wasn't something like a, um, something that I did like alone in my apartment or before I went to work. It was really like with men on dates, you know, when I was going out. And so I didn't think that that was like a true addiction. I'm curious if, because when you form a relationship, not based on alcohol, but based with alcohol, mm -hmm. Do you have the question of, do you really like me or do you only like me plus? Mm -hmm. Well, when I stopped drinking, that was my biggest fear was like, do people really like me or did they just like me plus the way that I am when I'm drunk? You know, I was really scared about how my friends would feel about me. I wasn't in a romantic relationship at the time that I got sober, but I certainly think if I had been, that would have been really a big question for me was like, will this person like me? Will they continue? Will they, do they truly like me? Um, but I felt it with my friends. It was like, do they really like Sarah? Do they really think I'm funny? Do they really enjoy being around me? Or do they like me plus two glasses of wine at our 
at birthday dinners or whatever on a Friday night. And will they still want to spend time with me now? I want to ask the question, which I know is answered in the book, but what was your this or that moment? Like it's either I continue alcohol in this or I stop right now so I can have that. Yeah. My boss at the startup that I was working at was having some people over for dinner at his apartment. And so I went and there was wine and I told myself I was only going to have a couple of glasses and we finished dinner and then someone brought out a bottle of whiskey and I told myself I would only have one. And I remember there was a point in the night I looked in the mirror and I was like, this is the point where you should go home. Like you're done. This is the point that you go home. And then there was another voice that was like a little bit louder. That was also my voice that was like, no, you should stay. Like you can show your boss how fun you are, you know, and I'm had some feelings for him that were a little bit romantic. And, um, and so I wanted to stay and I thought like, let's see what happens. And that was like one of my last memories from that night. And I woke up the next morning next to his best friend and I didn't remember what happened. I didn't remember what we had done. And it was probably like the one of the worst um, mornings after for me. I felt so ashamed and I felt so I couldn't like justify it. I couldn't tell myself oh, I wanted this to happen or it's fine. You know, it was really fun. It was just like, I, I didn't remember what happened. I didn't know how we had gotten back there. I was embarrassed thinking of my boss seeing me that way. I didn't know how it was going to affect my perform, you know, my work life. Um, and I remember walking home and just being like, I have to stop. Like this has to change. Like I have things that I want to do. I don't want to just be the drunk girl. I don't just want to be this person. And I didn't know if I could stop drinking. I really didn't. I was I was really scared that I wouldn't be able to do it, but I just felt kind of desperate enough in that moment to say, I'm just going to try. This would be a perfect place to end the episode, right? Just to be like, that's the perfect button. But like the thing that I'm self-conscious of, and as a non-drinker, I'm self-conscious of this because mm -hmm. I'm just aware that a lot of people are like, no, but it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think about that only because when I first started working as a sex educator, uh, my website was called saveyourcherry.com. Mm -hmm. And I went underneath that premise because I was like, sex has been so disappointing for me, mm. but sex is not disappointing. Mm. It was the way that I was interacting with it. And even in that, like I wanted, I think I used that as an excuse to talk about sex, to be like, no, but I'm actually warning people against it. Mm. But instead I just kind of wanted to tell a nuanced story of it. And mm -hmm. as I've you know gotten more into the work that I do, that story becomes more and more nuanced because sometimes a great sex life is no sex at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a great sex life is multiple partners every single night and that empowers you. And so that is sort of a part of it too, where it's hard to come up and I love that you're adding these caveats in there of if it's something in your life mm -hmm. that is not bringing you joy, mm -hmm. which you can't imagine another way. Mm -hmm. There is another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not anti-alcohol for everyone. I'm anti-alcohol for me because it wasn't working for me. And so it's like only you can truly be the judge of if something is serving you or not. And the reason I wrote the book was, you know, I would read, I would look for a lot of books about people who were sober. I read drinking books and a lot of them ended at the point where the person was like, I have to stop doing this. And I wanted to know what, what happened next, like what happens after. And so what was interesting for me was like going on dates without alcohol and having sex and changing career paths and my friendships evolving and things that I could never have imagined all the ways that my life improved when I just eliminated one thing from it. Oh, that was a beautiful conversation. Shout out to you, Sarah. If you are still listening, legit. It's just a no-brainer at this point. Go and get Drinking Games. It's available on paperback or audiobook. You can also follow Sarah on TikTok or Instagram at instagram.com slash Sarah Levy. Same thing with TikTok if that's your preferred platform. All that information in the show notes and speaking of show, let's keep it pushing. Up next, we're going to be talking with Erica Lubetkin. We is a stretch. Krizia Cruz, who is the producer on the show, Took a Saturday to chat with Erica and said that it was such a valuable and rich conversation. I love listening to it and I'm very proud to share what I heard with you. Shout out to Krizia for holding it down for me because I was, where was I on Saturday? With my kids maybe. 
Either case, let's talk about Erica. Erica is a nationally certified mental health counselor based in New York City. She specializes in working with clients who have anxiety and mood disorders, as well as helping clients through addiction and to have better relationships with their families. So you got a chance to listen to Sarah's interview. What were your initial takeaways? My initial takeaways was that, unfortunately, it's not a unique story and it becomes a learned behavior. And also, if you're like first getting into um, intimate relationships at a later stage in life or what, again, whatever stage in life it is, it becomes scary. So people sort of, you know, hint towards, oh, this is a social lubricant. This will help you. This will help lower your inhibitions, all of this stuff, which on the one hand is fine. But again, when it becomes the key, the access point for people to be able to express themselves sexually, to be able to become more vulnerable and intimate with people, what happens is like, it's a false sense of intimacy. It's a false sense of connection. It's a false sense of, um, liking somebody even how do you even know if you like the person that you're with you know the thing is is that like it decreases sex hormone levels overall that's something that alcohol does however in the beginning there's a temporary rise in the dopamine testosterone all the feel-good hormones which leads us to feel like this false sense of increased libido confidence like ooh, i can wear this outfit and feel amazing or i can do this thing that I saw them do on Sex in the City. Am I aging myself here? You know, years ago and feel cool like I'm the Samantha. Um, <laughs> but over time, these sort of the these mechanisms, these um, hormones don't rise as you drink alcohol. So if you're with your partner or just like going out with your friends and meet somebody and you've had two drinks, perhaps it will increase your sex drive. But if you are somebody who is constantly struggling with their intake of alcohol and you're sort of, you know, navigating, do I need to cut back? Do, am I drinking too much? Am I binge drinking? Am I blacking out? Over time, what's going to happen is these hormones are going to be depleted. And Sarah talks about kind of having instances where she woke up and she kind of had no recollection of what happened. So would you say alcohol kind of creates those high highs and then low lows to where you can't remember what happened? Absolutely. Well, yes. And, and blacking out and, you know, browning out and all of those terms, they're so, it's so, it takes such different um, circumstances to create that for somebody. But what happens when you drink in such excess amounts is you're introducing intense levels of a depressant into your body. And as a way for your body to remain in homeostasis, it actually creates more cortisol which is a stress hormone. It's, you know, it can be helpful in many scenarios, but cortisol can also give us anxiety, make us feel stressed, sweat, like worried, all this stuff. It's the fight or flight mechanism. Um, and when your body produces all this extra cortisol, and then the next morning you wake up and you have a hangover, you're hungover, the alcohol is leaving your system, but you're left with this excess, unnatural amount of cortisol that your body created. So you're left feeling panicked, anxious. What did I just do? The best thing I know how to do is to get out of this situation. I got to run away. I don't even want to engage with this person. But if you are feeling these negative emotions and you reach for that instant gratification, it will work to some extent, but ultimately it creates a mechanism again in your brain where you are just reinforcing and like heightening the depression and the anxiety because you're trying to reduce depression and anxiety by giving yourself a depressant versus like, you know, sitting with the feeling or being anxious and going into it anyway. And I know that, you know, this may be segueing a bit, but it's it speaks to the confidence levels as well like if you're feeling anxious entering um a situation with a sexual partner and you use substances to mask that anxiety sure cool maybe it'll help maybe it'll help in the moment maybe you'll feel like lowered inhibitions more self-confident all that stuff but the real confidence building occurs when you enter the situation that's causing anxiety or if you're a little, you know, depressed, anxious about depression and anxiety often go hand in hand with a clear head 
and have your experience, experience it, push yourself a little bit beyond your comfort zone in a safe way. I will say in a safe way, you know, wear the lingerie, show up in a way that you may like not normally show up. And that is the way to create confidence when it comes to intimacy and, you know, sexual experiences by experiencing those things and building on the confidence that you got that first time. And that is the dopamine hit that we should try and reach for versus the dopamine hit that we get from alcohol that leads us to think that the sex is good. If anyone is trying to, anyone listening is trying to navigate sober curious dating, sober dating, do you have perhaps any steps? I know you work with a lot of addiction and recovery. Do you have steps that someone can say, okay, this is my first step. This is the first mountain. How would you lay that out? I would say definitely have a lot of intentionality behind the dating experience. So if you're going from somebody who would go for drinks on every date and go super hard with all of it, um, and you're trying to not do that, let's say like you're sober curious, I would recommend starting with recommending coffee as a date because there's this thing, the opposite of uh, addiction is connection. So when, when, when we're struggling with substances, when we're struggling with alcohol, whatever the substance may be, we're getting a false sense of connection. And if you can find opportunities to connect with people on dates and feel that real sense of connection, it combats the desire to continue to drink. So I think it, you know, it's gotta be something that you accept that you're going to try and that you commit to trying. And there doesn't need to be so much planning. Like as a therapist, sometimes we'll be like, all right, well, how, like, what are you going to do beforehand? Make sure you eat all of these things. It's just about simplifying it and saying, okay, I'm going to feel anxious. I'm going to take deep breaths. I'm going to walk in, have a cup of coffee. And if I like the person, we'll see where it goes. I will also say that if you are going from high use, high level drinking to not wanting to drink anymore, give yourself some time to learn who you are, what brings you joy, what makes you happy, what makes you happy when you're, you know, alone on a Friday night with some sexy time, maybe with yourself before entering or jumping into something with somebody else, because we need to know how to love ourselves and respect ourselves and know what we enjoy once we leave that alcohol infused world. Love that because that, that was going to be my next question. What are some natural ways that someone can boost their confidence? Because I feel like if you self-medicate, it's going to backfire when you don't have that. So what are some natural ways that someone can walk into a situation to boost their confidence? I think that, you know, there's, there's positive self-talk and affirmations that I think have been very, very mainstreamed recently. Like a lot of you know, influential people are talking about it. You hear about affirmations, talking to yourself in the mirror. There's science behind this. It's in all of my behavioral therapy, anxiety and phobia workbooks to speak to yourself in a way that pumps you up to say, I am amazing. I am hot. I can handle this. Like, I can't wait to, you know, enter this situation and show them what I got. Ah, that was lovely. Krizia, thank you so much for putting that together. And Erica, thank you so much for putting your wisdom, putting your foot in that and just teaching a lot. If there's more that you feel you can learn from Erica, do not hesitate to go to ericalubetkin.com or follow her on Instagram at erica.lubetkin. I just want to really underscore the final note that she was making, wherein a lot of these redirections, these reroutes, um, when it comes to alcohol and intimacy, are really designed for people who feel like there is an unhealthy relationship there that they want to figure out if there's another way. If you do not feel that way and you feel that you have a very healthy dynamic with alcohol in your intimate life, no action required. Interestingly, I claimed at the top that I don't drink and that is something that is true, but it's becoming less true. After having my second kid, there are definitely days where I feel like, is there something that can just take this edge right on off? Like, is there something that can sand down the corners? Um, just allow me to really relax. We have a very short amount of time between putting the kids to bed and going to sleep ourselves. And sometimes taking the day off can take 
half that time. And so something that helps me take the day off so I can get into relax mode faster would be nice. And so I've been experimenting with alcoholic drinks and I'm going to admit something. The only one that I like is Moscato. And I know that is glorified Capri Sun left out in the sun for a couple of days. And I know this because there are no restaurants or bars that carry it. Because every time I go and ask, they don't know what I'm talking about and they don't have one. And so I've been on the hunt to find a Moscato adjacent drink that is actually readily available, um, but just as light and delicious. Fun fact, I actually went to a bar with Jared this weekend because again, you know, Jared had mentioned sort of half jokingly that he would want to share a drink with his wife. And I'm like, what would that feel like? What would that look like? How would that impact our sexual life? Like I'm in my sales up season of exploring. So let's see what that looks like. But I also don't want to see what it looks like at the cost of enjoying a beverage. So we went out. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to try and order an alcoholic drink. Can I get Moscato? Don't carry that. The waiter said, I got something for you, though. Hold tight. And then they proceeded to go to the bar and come back with a cup of Hennessy. I'm not an alcoholic aficionado or connoisseur, as I mentioned, but I do know that that shit was nothing like Moscato. So I sent it back and I'm on the hunt. If you have any suggestions, please let me know. And a great place to communicate with me, of course, is on Instagram um, or, of course, on YouTube if you're watching it there in the comments section. But another place that I reliably read and I go to you for feedback on the episodes or the podcast at large is, you guessed it, the rate and review section on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This area in particular is extremely important when it comes to communicating the success of a podcast to the rest of the world because there is no view count on podcasts. So they really rely, and by they I mean the powers that be, on this section to tell them if people give a shit about it, for better or worse. So I want to give a shout out to the people who gave enough shits to go and write something. Sean Rowe. Why don't you guys just put your regular names? I just want to ask that question. Why are all these names so confusing? One, two, three, four, five, one diva. K. Smay. Don't think that's your real name. Cali 92. Bonjour Paris. Where is the Tunisia Millers? Just clarify. Anyways, going back. Queen says, so much love and light, Shan. Thank you for all the time you put into the podcast. The love and dedication translates even through the mic. My light went off and it came back on. All right. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. One Diva says, thank you for creating a safe space to have evolved conversations. Um, Kay Smay says, I want to share how this podcast, podcast offers so much to my everyday life. The themes are vast and I feel as though I've been properly posed a question to sit with until next episode. I would go on, but that right there, that was my masturbation. You hit my spots, you hit my erogenous zones. That was foreplay, I'm warmed up, I'm ready to go. Go do what? I'm gonna go fuck life. And I hope you feel energized too to go and do the same. And until next time, I hope it's good for you. Cause it's been really, really good for me. Bye. Lovers and friends. Lovers and friends. I'm gonna take you on a trip, baby, I don't pretend I say. Lovers and friends, uh, I'm gonna hold you down, down to the end, I said. Lovers and Friends is executive produced by Shared Entertainment's Shan Boudram. It is produced by Boudram and Crazia Cruz with production support from 2S Entertainment's Adam Krasner, Isabel Gallant, and Brianna Barone. The Lovers and Friends theme song is produced by Sean Ross and performed by Jared Brady, who also does the scoring and engineering on our episodes. Lovers and Friends is powered by Audio Boom and made possible by our incredible sponsors who you can show love to by reading our show notes.